Hello, welcome to episode seven of Documentary Fact or Fiction, the latest podcast series as part of Deepak Casts, a collection of podcasts that we're presenting here from the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame. My name's Ted Barron. I'm the executive director here at the DeBartolo Center. I also serve as a teacher of documentary film, and we've been exploring over the past seven weeks um, a series of documentary films that are tied to the class that I'm uh, teaching, Documentary Fact or Fiction, where we're kind of examining what documentary is and seeing how certain films raise challenges about documentary representation. This week, we have a really interesting example, a film that has kind of a fascinating story behind it. Um, and it's, a, it's titled The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. It was directed by Hara Kazuo in 1987. As we've been shifting uh, our direction within, within the course, we're starting to look more globally. The, the earlier examples were primarily films uh, based in the U.S. or in Western Europe. Now we're starting to see films uh, coming from other parts of the world that don't have um, as, as frequent a representation within documentary uh, film histories. Japan, of course, has a rich history of filmmaking, which, uh, which is often captured in, in different f- film history contexts. But in the case of documentary film, there aren't as many directors who get discussed. Harukazuo is arguably one of the more interesting figures to come out of Japan, fiction or nonfiction. Um, interestingly, he was born in 1945, just at the end of World War II. And so much of late 20th century Japanese film often deals with kind of the aftermath of the war and how that's had a lingering effect on uh, the Japanese people. And he was someone who lived firsthand, through, uh, or kind of had firsthand experience with, uh, with what those struggles were. His family was, uh, was poor. Um, they, um, they struggled to kind of make ends meet, um, you know, whether it was, you know, having, having food to eat or uh, work, for, uh, work for his family. It just was, it, it was a period of real struggle. Um, and I think that comes to inform his own positioning uh, as or as an outsider and as someone who would study outsiders over the course of his career. He uh, he's quoted as saying how he uh, he's not a fan of mainstream society, um, and so we see within a fairly small body of work. Um, it's not that he produced he directed so many films, but the films that he did choose to direct are often about people kind of positioned on the margins. Um, but he also came of age during various protest movements in the 1960s, whether it was labor movements, students, uh, the feminist movement kind of emerging very strongly in the 1960s. And that also comes to inform a lot of the choices that he ultimately makes as, as a director. The first film that he directed was um, Goodbye CP, where he worked with a group of people who were living with cerebral palsy. Uh, this group ultimately uh, kind of formed their own disability rights movement in which they uh, they sought to confront some of the issues around uh, what we would now call body shaming associated with their condition, where people didn't want to see representations of people living with cerebral palsy, in particular the the impacts it would have on um, on their on their bodies. Um, 
Hara uh, worked very closely with these subjects to present them as they are, not as victims of a particular condition. Um, and, uh, and, and in his frankness in filming these subjects, it was seen as uh, something – it was actually seen as controversial in, in the way that he presented, uh, presented these individuals within the film. Now, it's not without – it wasn't without its problems, uh, although he worked very collaboratively uh, with his subjects. At one point, uh, some of the subjects actually confront him about his practices – uh, questioning whether this is ultimately exploitative in the way that he's trying to show the conditions that they're living through. But but that also kind of reveals something that, that's going to come up uh, throughout Hara's career, which is um, this attempt to kind of work with subjects in shaping the content that we ultimately experience within the film, um, and also presenting subjects who have more of a confrontational nature. It's, it's you know, as much as, you know, there's this concern about exploitation, this was a group that was looking to be uh, uh, more, um, you know, to offer more of a con- more confrontation with uh, kind of mainstream society. Um, his second feature film is arguably, I would say, is, is his most provocative. If you watch um, his work, and it's been it's been a while since I've seen all of his films, but um, it's a pretty it's a pretty significant body of work. Uh, this film is called Extreme Private Eros <laughs> Love Song. In this film, Hara follows his former. It's unclear whether she was his wife or just you know just a a woman that he was intimately involved uh, with, named uh, Takeda Mayuki. Uh, Mayuki, uh, she ultimately left him to pursue a relationship with another woman as she was kind of <laughs> interested in exploring her sexuality in different ways. Um, she actually worked as a stripper and had a lot of close relationships with prostitutes um, in Japan, in particular trying to provide resources for uh, working prostitutes. Uh, but she also, um, in her various, you know, uh, personal relationships, she had become pregnant uh, from uh, from an affair that she had had with a black American soldier who was stationed in Okinawa um, during during the 1960s. And the film actually chronicles her pregnancy and ultimately delivery uh, of the child, which is presented in detail. Um, so you can see kind of that you know you see you see everything kind of presented within that process. Um, but this is a much more personal work and. A work that you know very directly confronts questions around uh, gender discrimination, racial discrimination. As someone who is, you know, as uh, uh, Mayuki is someone who's giving birth to a biracial child in Japan, who's likely to be considered kind of an outcast within uh, the society of Japan in the in the 1960s and early 1970s. Um, this this film brings all of those things to the forefront, but it also chronicles um, some really tense interactions between uh, Mayuki and Hara. She's She's often uh, very um, aggressive toward him, um, kind of questioning his own masculinity um, in, throughout the film. And again, Hara is not a fr- you know these are things that you would think Hara would maybe leave on the editing room floor, but these are all included in the process of the, of of, the, of, uh, of watching this story unfold. So with these two early films, you know, there's a question of whether Hara was kind of exhausted by the process, and, it, and you know, his career somewhat suggests that because he didn't embark on um, his own filmmaking project for about another ten years. Um, He primarily worked as an assistant to other Japanese directors, most notably um, Shohei Imamura, uh, working on his film Vengeance is Mine. 
Now, that turns me to the subject of the film that I'm, I'm talking about that we're focusing on, which is The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. Uh, the subject of the film is a gentleman named Okuzaki Kenzu. Uh, Okuzaki was a veteran of what was a very brutal campaign in New Guinea during World War II in which uh, you know, Japan was uh, fighting against um, allied forces. Um, and during that campaign, um, you know, partly due to the location of New Guinea and, and its sort of isolated setting, he witnessed he witnessed um, what he would what he kind of came to describe as a series of sanctioned war crimes, uh, war crimes that were actually sanctioned by um, you know military leadership, Japanese military leadership. And he spent a good portion of his life um, on a mission to actually hold the Japanese military and the political establishment accountable for these atrocities that, that were committed during the war. Um, and he's a man of very extreme measures. He had, he had actually uh, served prison time uh, for the accidental murder of a real estate broker. Um, ultimately, he was, although he could have served a shorter sentence for the, for the, mur- for the, for the man's death, he, um, he ultimately served a full sentence um, because he didn't, you know, just because of the way he didn't want to sort of uh, apologize for what had happened. Um, he most, but most infamously, um, he actually attempted an assault on Emperor Hirohito in the 1960s, um, and he did this uh, in an interesting way. He he shot pachinko balls at the emperor using a slingshot, um, and this landed him in in prison again during the 1960s. Um, but but again, driven by this um, kind of burning desire to you know make uh, the emperor take account for. Um, the you know what had happened during the war. Later on in the 1970s, he gets arrested again because he produces a series of pornographic pamphlets which feature Hirohito, and these are seen as uh, blasphemous and and again cause for uh, for more time in prison. So Okuzaki has a pretty colorful personal history, um, and he had come to know Imamura through Imamura's filmmaking, uh, through you know his film his own uh, filmmaking practices and wanted uh, Okazaki wanted Imamura to direct a film based on his life but he thought it would be but Imamura who had already made a series of films for television about the war which were seen as somewhat controversial thought Okazaki's story was just was just too much so he suggested uh, Harakazuo who at that point had been working as an assistant to Imamura to to direct this feature film ultimately Hara and Okazaki connect and agreed to make you know this this film, although as Hara describes, it was very much a kind of exploratory process in the way that they in the way that they went about filming. Um, essentially, what the film chronicles is Okuzaki in um, in now in his sixties in the early nineteen eighties um, as he revisits other members of uh, the military campaign in New Guinea and demands that they um, account for their actions during the war. Now, initially, this seems to be about what was documented, which was the execution of some lower-ranking soldiers for insubordination uh, during the war. But the revelations become increasingly shocking. Um, it turns out that when they were isolated in New Guinea and the, and the uh, company was cut off from resources, they had to resort to cannibalism in order to stay alive. So part of the part of what it gets revealed is that you know some of the younger soldiers were not 
okay with this, um, and they resisted orders to actually practice cannibalism. Um, hard to laugh about, but uh, kind of a crazy extreme circumstances. And Okuzaki is, you know, at this point, you know, forty years, almost forty years after the these incidents occurred, trying to get the key people involved to to take account for their actions. Uh, many of the many of the veterans uh, and former soldiers that he meets with uh, refuse to acknowledge any wrongdoing. They try to say, you know, the war was the war, and just you know try to sort of sweep these things under the rug. And this this ultimately prompts Okuzaki to become increasingly agitated and confrontational. And in some cases, he goes so far when when some of these uh, uh, men that he goes back to interview. Uh, and um, and they refuse to kind of comply with his you know request for accountability. He goes so far as to beat them up, um, and we see so a series of assaults kind of uh, that are that are captured uh, by Hara Kazuo. Um, so Hara shot the film over a two-year period from 1982 to 1983. Um, he accumulated over 40 hours of footage in the process of shooting the film. Um, there would have been more, um, but uh, because part of the one of the intentions of the film was to actually go back to New Guinea to revisit uh, the scenes where some of these uh, very horrific actions had taken place. Um, and so he traveled to New Guinea with Okuzaki. They ultimately get into, and they shoot hours and hours of footage. But and when they're trying to leave the country, they get into, uh, Okuzaki gets into co- uh, conflict with local uh, police officers, and they ultimately confiscate um, the footage that they shot during their visit. Um, so Hara, at the, at the end of this process, was just, you know, it, it kind of it maybe parallels what he went through early on in his career. He just became so exhausted with the project that he had to set it aside for a couple of years. So even though he finished filming in 1983, he didn't pick up the editing process until a couple of years later. And then the film is ultimately released in 1987. One of the things that stands out about Hara's process is it's truly a collaborative process between um, him and his subject, Okuzaki. Um, they, uh, you know, throughout the shoot, uh, Hara would consult with Okuzaki and they would try to determine what to include in the film, where they, where they would go to shoot. Um, and when we've talked about, you know, kind of some of the challenges of documentary film uh, over the years is that there's been this uh, issue of the divide between filmmaker and subject and um, in the sense that the filmmaker is often in this detached, maybe, you know, perceived as kind of an exalted position relative to their often lowly subjects um, who they are, you know, who they deem worthy to film and present in, in, in the course of, of making a documentary. Um, but one of the one of the sort of proposed ways of dealing with that is to set up a more collaborative relationship uh, between filmmaker and subject. And, and this is ultimately what um, Hara is able to do with Okuzaki, although it comes at a cost. Um, Okuzaki, if, you know, if it's not already evident from some of his, uh, you know, his actions over the course of his life, is a very intense personality. He'd call Hara at all hours of the night, try to make suggestions about what to include, what not to include. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, what they film or what we, what, the way the film is presented um, is, you know, is one in which we see, you know, kind of a genuine collaboration between filmmaker and subject. Now, I would also say that relative to some of the recent films that, that we've discussed, this is a more, more conventional documentary. It's, you know, we follow a kind of chronological progression of Hara's documentation of Okuzaki. It feels somewhat in kind of, rever- of a reversion back to the observation mode of documentary that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, 
relative to the cinema verite movement where, you know, Hara is a kind of distanced observer, even though he's very kind of close to the action. There are some reflexive aspects of, of the film. There's, um, there are scenes where, you know, there's an acknowledgement of the, of filming as it happens. We see some of the subjects who are being filmed, they bow toward the camera at different points, just kind of acknowledging the, the camera's presence. Um, but what's probably more interesting is the way in which this process, in which Hara is kind of following Okuzaki around, raises uh, some more challenging questions about representation and more importantly, ethics. Um, where Hara was actually called into account after the film's release is, is you know, relative to these scenes in which Okuzaki is, is assaulting his, uh, the people that he's going to interview. And that Hara continues to film and doesn't intervene. Uh, he doesn't try to stop him uh, in the process. Um, and that actually it had the potential to go even further. Okuzaki had actually lobbied Hara to, to film him as he was planning to kill one of his former officers. Um, Hara ultimately refused, um, and also and with the intervention of um, his producer, they decided that you know this was not something that they were going to document, um, even if Okuzaki carried it out. But it raises, but you know, it, it, Hara acknowledges that there was this tension about you know how much he should intervene within the process. And, you know, I guess murder was a step too far, but, um, but just the sense of, you know, what is the, what is the filmmaker's responsibility um, in the way that he goes about filming? The other kind of stylistic quality that I think is really um, uh, engaging about the film is just its sense of immediacy. Um, as, you know, I noted that Hara described this as an exploratory process. Um, his films are sometimes called action documentaries, uh, where they're you know he's filming you know just a, a kind of a series of actions as they're as they're unfolding. Um, and while this is a film that's very much rooted in history, um, there's so much discussion about about what had happened uh, during World War II. Even though the film the filming is taking place in the early 1980s, um, he avoids what could be you know kind of devices that that might be you know kind of easier for viewers to to take in as ways to understand that history. There's no um, there's no use of archival footage. Um, we don't see any kind of reenactments of, of events from the war. There's no use of voiceover uh, narration to kind of guide um, the viewer or the listener in the case of voiceover uh, through those experiences, nor are there any interviews with you know, experts on the war to kind of capture those, to capture that history. Um, really, it's, you know, besides the footage that Hara shoots of Okuzaki as he you know, has these various encounters, um, the only thing we, we see that kind of gives us any sense of context is he'll, he'll occasionally insert um, newspaper headlines, which often are documenting um, Okuzaki's arrests that he, uh, that he lived through throughout the, throughout the process of uh, filming the film. But the, um, the, the film was surprisingly very well received in Japan. In fact, it, uh, it actually spoke to a wide range of audiences. Some sense that this was, you know, kind of a film that hit at the right time when the Japanese were were more ready to kind of account for uh, some of the issues related to the war and some of the tra the tragedy of the war, which had largely been kind of avoided, um, you know, essentially, you know, really kind of sw you know sweeping those uh, feelings kind of under the rug in terms of you know what uh, what had happened during the war. But there was some concerns that the film had had actually sparked an appeal to more radical factions in within Japan and whether that would lead to 
uh, more uh, political unrest as a result of the film. But nonetheless, it, it was a film that, you know, that definitely that had a strong impact. Um, the film played very well internationally. So while Hara's early films really didn't have much uh, play outside of Japan, and even within Japan, they weren't they weren't particularly uh, well received. Um, although they are well worth watching, um, they are his. This film was the film that really broke him to an international audience. He won awards at uh, the Berlin Film Festival, the Rotterdam Film Festival, and it opened up uh, more opportunities for him to to make you know more of these action documentaries. Now his career has still been um, I wouldn't call it prolific. He's made maybe two or three documentary features since uh, since 1987, but he did pursue a lot of other opportunities. As, um, as, as, a, as an instructor of film and, um, and on the lecture circuit. So his, his reputation really, um, really grew worldwide as a result of, of this very powerful work. Um, and I would say you know, the, the, the impact of the film is also significant if we think about documentary as a place to you know, confront um, really, strong, uh, really strong social issues. I first encountered this work in the mid-2000s, and it was around the time in which Michael Moore was gaining a lot of attention for films like Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11. And you can see within Harakazua's work you know, this, um, this attempt to document these more kind of confrontational aspects of uh, within Japanese society, that that perhaps it's something that influenced a filmmaker uh, like Michael Moore, who's known for his kind of uh, as a filmmaker within his own films, the, the way he uh, confronts uh, confronts his subjects. Um, the you know the question I guess of whether you know this gets us to you know a deeper sense of truth is always it's always very subjective, um, but you know that sense of immediacy that uh, that horror captured is really something that's quite distinct even from um, you know the, his observational forebears. If we look at this work compared to kind of the earlier examples of observational documentary, um, it really stands out in the way that um, the way that he connects with his subject. And, and, I, and perhaps part of that has to do with the tension that existed between Hara and Okuzaki. While, you know, at times it's a very collaborative approach, there was, a, there was just as much tension that emerged between filmmaker and subject, which is probably inevitable uh, when trying to document something like this. So that covers uh, The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On, a film from 1987, directed by Hara Kazuo. Uh, we hope you can join us on our next episode of Documentary Fact or Fiction.